You know, like most of you guys, um, I've probably spent a lot of time reading way too many articles about our times, to, about the virus, about what's going on. And there's one article that I read recently, and it wasn't a bad article, but one of the elements in this article said this as kind of a hope-filled statement. It says, I trust in science. Science will win. Our hope is that science will win. And I remember reading that article and thinking, that is not my hope. I cannot hope in science. Science is not my hope because I don't know what science is going to say. I don't know what's going to happen. But our hope is in Christ. And our confidence is secure because he is resurrected. And I love that for us, that we come with this idea, the song that we just sang, we lean not on our own understanding. We lean not on science. But we trust that, God, you are in control. That you hold everything in your hands. This is why we come to him in prayer. We come together during this time in our worship service in congregational prayer because we know we don't hold all the answers. We know that we don't have the source of, of all things. We know we're not creator. We know we're not God, even though so often people in this culture and society live as if they are. We pray because we have nowhere else to turn to. We pray because we need God to move. We pray because our hope is in him and our confidence is in him. So we come together to, to a time of congregational prayer where we come together and we bring our prayers and our hearts and our requests before our loving Father who hears us, who cares, and who's, who lifts, loves our prayers because it brings intimacy, it shows dependence on him. Today we're going to pray a prayer that Jesus actually prayed in John chapter 17 where he prays for unity. He prays for the, his disciples and the people who follow him to be as one. And I love this in, in John 17. He says when, when they pray and, they, and when they are one, when they're unified, that the world will see that God loves them and they love God. And they're together in this. I love this imagery of when we show the world that we are one, we're in unity together, we show the love of God. And I think that's incredible. And that's something that we're praying for as a church in this time. We live in a world, we live in a, a, a time that's so polarizing. We have so many factions. And guys, hear me very well. Being one doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. Being one says we agree on the most important things. That our hope is found in Christ. That our mission and mandate is given by him to us. And over all things, whether disagreement or not, we show love and unity together. So may we be a church body first that's unified under Jesus Christ. May we be a people that are unified and may we show the love of God to the world because we're united. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you first and foremost that we can be united. That your spirit dwells amongst us, uniting and knitting our hearts together. God, that deceiving work, the thing that unifies us more than anything else, more than nationality, more than race, more than demographics, more than anything else, the thing that unites us is the blood of Jesus. God, that we are part of one family. We're co-heirs alongside of him. We're part of an adopted family that you brought us into, that you chose us and loved us and redeemed us and called us. So we thank you that we're united in that. May that trump every other thing. May that supersede every other disagreement that we may have, that we are one family together, called to one purpose. God, in this time, in this world, there's so many ideas or factions or situations that can pull us apart, that try to pull us apart, that try to separate us. Holy Spirit, we continue to knit our hearts together as a family.
Will you make us one so that the world can see your love? God, will you teach us how to handle disagreements with grace, with patience? God, will you show us how to communicate well? God, will you teach us, give us wisdom and how to process information well? God, will you humble us? God, may that be, may humility be a marker of who we are as followers of you. May we be humble learners. May we be humble listeners. God, and honestly, that is so anti our nature right now. That's anti me. God, will you humble me? Holy Spirit, will you show us what it means? Will you give us the example of Christ who humbled himself to death upon a cross to serve us? So we may, may, may the mark of us be unity and humbleness. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Exodus chapter 16. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed to the wilderness of Sin, between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There, too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they will gather food, and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, By evening you will realize it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaints, which are against him, not against us. What have we done that you should complain about us? Then Moses added, The Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and bread to satisfy you in the morning, for he has heard all your complaints against him. What have we done? Yes, your complaints are against the Lord, not against us. Then Moses said to Aaron, Announce this to the entire community of Israel. Present yourselves before the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israel, they looked out toward the wilderness. There they could see the awesome glory of the Lord in the cloud. Then the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the Israelites' complaints. Now tell them, in the evening you will have meat to eat, and in the morning you will have all the bread you want. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening vast numbers of quail flew in and covered the camp, and the next morning the area around the camp was wet with dew. When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. They had no idea what it was. And Moses told them, This is the food the Lord has given you to eat. These are the Lord's instructions. Each household should gather as much as it needs. Pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people of Israel did as they were told. Some gathered a lot, some only a little, but when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. Then Moses told them, do not keep any of it until morning. 
But some of them didn't listen and kept some of it until morning. But by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. Moses was very angry with them. After this, the people gathered the food morning by morning, each family according to its need. And as the sun became hot, the flakes they had not picked up, melted and disappeared. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much as usual, four quarts for each person instead of two. Then all the leaders of the community came and asked Moses for an explanation. He told them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath day set apart for the Lord. So bake or boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. So they put aside until morning, just as Moses had commanded. And in the morning, the leftover food was wholesome and good without maggots or odor. Moses said, eat this food today, for today is a Sabbath day dedicated to the Lord. There will be no food on the ground today. You may gather the food for six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. There'll be no food on the ground that day. Some of the people went out anyway on the seventh day, but they found no food. The Lord asked Moses, how long will these people refuse to obey my commands and instructions? They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. That is why he gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day. So there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must each stay in your place. Do not go out to pick up food on the seventh day. So the people did not gather any food on the seventh day. The Israelites called the food manna. It was white like coriander seed, and it tasted like honey wafers. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Fill a two-quart container with manna to preserve it for your descendants. Then later generations will be able to see the food I gave you in the wilderness when I set you free from Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, Get a jar and fill it with two quarts of manna. Then put, it, put in it a sacred place before the Lord to preserve it for all future generations. Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He eventually placed it in the Ark of the Covenant, in front of the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. So the people of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they arrived at the land where they would settle. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Waypoint Church. I'm Danny, one of the pastors here, and I love teaching God's word. And I love being with people. And this morning, I get to teach God's Word. But unfortunately, I'm not physically together with many of you, with you guys, my brothers and sisters. But God is good. And He is here with us as we worship Him using this incredible technology and these gifted people that He has provided. Um, but I think about the early church. They used Roman roads and Roman resources to spread the good news of Jesus throughout the empire. The printing press and advances in printing technology allowed the reformers to spread the gospel to millions of people and get the word of God to millions of people. Airplanes and boats have allowed us to, ambassadors of Jesus, to send the gospel to distant lands. And even today, in 2020, before all of us went completely online for the quarantine, tens of thousands of our brothers and sisters throughout the world have already been using the internet and all sorts of digital technologies to tell people everywhere the good news. So even though this is a difficult time and it's an unusual time, 
it can still be a time to tr- for us to trust God and to pray and to ask him for wisdom on how to use this time and use available resources to love God and love others. And for this morning, we're in a sermon series on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and we're in Exodus, looking at how God used Moses and Aaron and Miriam to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. Last week, we looked at the Exodus out of Egypt and how God used Moses to lead the people across the Red Sea. And I know some of you might be wondering, how did I get a haircut? Because I was starting to look like Moses. I had a big beard, and my beard was growing, and my hair was getting crazy. I didn't break quarantine. I promise you that. Maggie, my daughter, first time ever, she cut my hair. So that's awesome. But now I look a little less like Moses. So let's look at Moses. This is when we think of Moses, what does he look like? Yeah, that's Moses, right? Charleston Heston, 1950s. I look a little less like Moses. I, th- I actually think I look a little more like Pharaoh. What do you think? What do you think? Cleanly shaven Pharaoh? I don't know. So that's a joke. Um, you know, I just want to lighten things up because, you know, this, these are tough times. Even getting a haircut is a crazy thing right now. Uh, but thinking about, forgetting about Moses and Charlton Heston and Pharaoh and shaving and beards, all jokes aside, we're at the point of the biblical narrative, the account where we've seen God do something incredible. God's done the miraculous. The grand event of Old Testament history has just happened. The event that all Jewish people forever look back to. The event that prepared the people of God for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the anointed Messiah, who like Moses would deliver his people, but unlike Moses, he not only brought deliverance from other armies, but he brought complete deliverance from the bondage of sin, the bondage of death, and he completely conquered evil and our primary enemy, Satan. And he will bring us into the final rest. So let's recap the Exodus event. How did we get to this point? So at the end of Genesis, at the beginning of Exodus, 70 of Jacob's descendants come to live with Joseph in Egypt. About 400 years pass. The new leadership doesn't want this growing Israelite population to become a powerful minority. And they make, the Pharaoh makes a mandate, an order to kill all the Israelite male babies. And the mandate fails, so then he tries again and he says, we're going to throw them all in the river when they're born. And God gives Moses' mom and Moses' sister Miriam favor and a plan and puts them in a small basket, actually puts them in the river, but in a small ark. And God saves Moses, and Moses actually grows up in the palace, similar to how Joseph did. Then Moses, as an adult, goes out, and while he's out and about, he sees the injustice toward his people. He ends up having to flee. He goes to Midian. He flees to another country in Midian. It's awesome. He gets a wife. He's chill. You know, everything's going good. Got flocks, money. You know, he's got everything he needs. He's like rolling in dough, you know. And he takes his flocks and he goes to this base of this mountain in the wilderness. Maybe there's some grass there. And he takes the flocks and he ends up at the mountain of God. And he sees a burning bush. And like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before him, he meets God there. 
And God, not Abraham and Isaac and Jacob didn't meet God at that mountain, but they met God. And Moses meets God while he's tending his flock. And God tells him this. He tells him a lot of things in that account. But I want to focus on one thing God says. And this is from Exodus 3.12. It says, And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So the sign is not a big army, not that they get delivered, but the sign is that they get to worship God at this very mountain. Remember that quote. So then God gives Moses his name. He says, my name is I am, Yahweh. The I am that I am, or the I will be that will be. God didn't give his personal name to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, even when Jacob asked to it, asked for it. Now Moses goes to the people, and they don't really trust him or believe in him. At least Aaron and Miriam do, his family does. And he tells them, hey, I'm going to go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's going to let us be free. So he goes to Pharaoh and let my people go. You know, the famous Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. You guys sang that before, but he goes to Pharaoh and he, he, God works it out and there's 12 plagues. Pharaoh doesn't listen and there's 12 plagues and the final plague God saves the children of Israel from death by the blood of an innocent lamb that's spread over the doorpost and death passes over each house that the blood has protected the house. The Israelites leave Egypt. They're headed to the mountain to worship God. Pharaoh changes his mind. He sends the army and the chariots. So now they're at this point. They have the army on one side. They have the chariots on the other. I mean, they have the army and the chariots on one side. And then they get to this body of water, the Red Sea. And they don't know what to do. And their back's against the wall. Now, just a note on the Red Sea. That's the English word we use. If you look on a map, the Red Sea is kind of far from where they're coming. It's a body of water. It might be translated the Sea of Reeds. But they get to a body of water, and God has to do something miraculous. So they got this powerful army on one side. They got the body of water on the other side. They're on the brink of destruction. And then God provides a way. God parts the sea and destroys the army of Egypt. Wow. Can you see why this is the defining moment in Israel's history? They were dead. Their backs were against the wall. The promise to Abraham of a great nation of all these people was about to be slaughtered at the Red Sea. And then God brings them victory in a miraculous way. When we lived in Boston, there were monuments to the Revolutionary War everywhere. On Patriots Day, every year around noon, Patriots Day is this other day, it's like April 20th, it's the day they run the Boston Marathon. On Patriots Day, every year around noon, Paul Revere and William Dawes, reenactors, would ride past our old neighborhood, just outside of Boston. So I'm going to show a photo. This is a photo of the Minutemen waiting. I got so, this is the first year we lived there. I got so excited that I forgot to take a picture of Paul Revere. And uh, even the Redcoats showed up that day, uh, 240 years after the original event. We were still celebrating. There were Redcoats on our street. We were still celebrating the victory over the British 240 years later. And actually, as a country, every year on the 4th of July, we set aside the day to celebrate this victory. So you can see the Passover and the victory of Reds, the Red Sea was their moment. So now what? They're out. They've escaped from Egypt. What's next? Theologians Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson in their recent book on Exodus state this so profoundly. I love this quote. It's going to be up on the screen. 
Escaping from Egypt is only the first half of the Exodus. It is easy for us to forget this in an age where freedom is understood as merely being freedom from, from oppression, from constraint, or whatever. This aspect of of liberation, as wonderful as, as it is, is only half the deal. In the scriptures, more emphasis is placed on freedom for, for worship, for flourishing, for growth and obedience and joy and glory. Human beings are not designed to be free from all constraints, slaves to nothing but our own passions, triumphantly enthroned as our own masters, even as our own gods. Everybody serves somebody. So the point of the Exodus is not just for Israel to find deliverance from serving the old master, it is for them to find delight in serving the new one. That's what God's end game was. That, sorry, that was God's end game with the Exodus all along. Back in the burning bush, he described Moses' mission like this. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You are currently servants of Pharaoh, God explained, but when you're done, you will be servants of me. As it turns out, freedom from serving Pharaoh isn't the easy bit. From the beginning to the end, it only takes 14 chapters. Freedom to serve God, on the other hand, takes 40 years of wandering and the next four books. Wow, good stuff. It's easy for us to hear this in hindsight, and we can say stuff like, I, never have been, I would never have been like that. I would have listened to Moses and trusted God. Stupid Israelites, right? I can imagine Napoleon Dynamite, like, stupid. Can't believe it. I love Napoleon Dynamite. It's one of my favorite movies. But, but in hindsight, we can look back and be like, I can't believe they did that. But in reality, we're so much like them. We are sinful, broken people. God gives us his favor, and we willingly take it. And then as soon as things don't go our way, I mean minutes, hours, weeks, as soon as things don't go our way, we complain, we lean on our own understanding, and not, we lean on our own understanding and, not, and our, not on our faith in God's promises. So God delivers them through a miraculous military victory and escape, and they get to the other side of the Red Sea, and then God begins to show them how to be his people. They're running low on water, they finally get to an oasis, and the water's bitter. Really, God? Then God tells Moses to throw a log in the water. And miraculous, miraculously, it becomes fresh again, and they can drink it. Here's the account from Exodus 15, 25, 27, right after they escape through the Red Sea. It was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decrees as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all his decrees, then I will, make you, I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. After leaving Marah, the Israelites traveled on, the oasis, traveled on to the oasis of Elam, where they found 12 springs and 70 palms. They camped there beside the water. So God says, I'm going to test you, but he provides a way. Remember the point brought up earlier. The goal of the Exodus is not just for Israel to find deliverance from serving the old master. It is for them to find delight in serving the new one. God does not want them to worry about the size of their army or even their food supply. I mean, you think, hey, those are probably the two most important things that we need. 
God wants them to fully rely on him and get to, get to the mountain where they can worship him. The goal isn't the army and the goal isn't even the food supply. The goal is to get to the mountain so they could worship God and fully know who they are in God and fully live for him and be his people. God and his love begins to allow them to face trials and tests to prepare them to be his people. Think about the first day of a sports team tryout. So when I was in eighth grade, I told my cousin, he actually played football and baseball at Auburn and good athlete, you know, all-state athlete, and I told my cousin, hey, I want to play on the high school baseball team. First thing he says to me, he didn't ask if I was good at baseball. He asked me if I was good at running. I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, in the baseball tryouts, the first couple days, all the coach is going to do is make you run. So I joined cross country, freshman year, ninth grade. And my cousin was right. They made us run a lot for baseball. Actually, we probably ran more than we did some of the other drills at the beginning. And this was in South Florida, so it was hot. So joining cross country was not fun, but it was worth it because it trained me all those miserable days in the heat, running those miles and miles. I had never run probably more than a mile before that. But all those days of running really prepared me to be in good shape for baseball. And I'm thankful that my cousin challenged me to that. Think about Mr. Miyagi or Vince Lombardi. They didn't coddle their athletes. Uh, No, they put them through rigorous trials and tests to prepare them for the game. Everybody in the room is laughing at my Mr. Miyagi joke, you know. Yeah, Mr. Miyagi and Vince Lombardi are very different, but it's the same idea. They put their guys through a test so that they could train them to be better. But God is not a karate master or a harsh 1950s, 60s football coach. But he does love his children, and he knows what his children need to be able to follow him. God disciplines those he loves. We find this teaching throughout Scripture, from Psalm 94 to Proverbs 3 to Jeremiah 30 to Hebrews 12 and many other places. And by discipline, I mean he allows them, actually he allows us, because them is us, to go through certain trials and hardships that allow us to grow and more fully rely on God. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 is very clear on this. It says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. A little side note, we're going to actually study James after we study the Pentateuch. So some of you are like, hey, what are we going to do next? That's what we're going to do next. So God, in his love, begins to allow them to face trials and tests to prepare them to be his people. The first test was the water at Mara. Now we get to the second test. Remember, they're on the way to Mount Sinai. They were in route, camping along the way in the wilderness. Now remember, this is nomad camping, not REI camping. So they don't have all the, the good tents and all the, the sweet REI equipment. They're just nomads who grabbed a bunch of stuff when they came out of Egypt. And the, you know, so they, they ran out of water, God provides them water, and now they're running out of food. They didn't have those ready-to-eat meal kits and beef jerky or camel jerky. You know, they're, they're, they're struggling. And then this happens. This really happens in Exodus 16. The passage that Erica read earlier. Um, 
It says this, the whole Israelite community set out for Elam and they came to the desert of sin. And actually that word sin is not our English word sin. It's more like sign. It's, it's, it's linked to the word Sinai. It's just the name of the place, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. So they've been out of Egypt about a month, you know. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Wow, one month and they're already ready. They would rather have died than than be delivered. But I think we're kind of the same way. How many of you, after a couple weeks of a trial, are like, God, I just wish I wish I would have died. You know, you don't say that, but you, you, you just, you give up. And you, you just say, God, I'm not going to trust you. And then they said, we sat there around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve us, to starve this entire assembly. You have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Wow. They just saw God deliver them from and destroy the army. And they're griping. But then God says to Moses, so God doesn't even, God says, okay. You know, says to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that has to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So what can we learn from this account? Here are four truths from the manna account that I believe for us that that we can look at today as God's redeemed people. So these are four truths from the manna account. The first one, trials and hardships do not mean that God is not with us. They might actually be a sign that God is with you. Probably about half of Paul's letters, he spends a portion of the letter defending that his hardships actually show that he has God's favor because Christ suffered. Many of them are like, well, Paul, you must not have God's favor because you're suffering. But actually, Paul argues over and over and over again that because he's suffering, it's showing that God is with him. And I, I want to remind you guys, it's okay to question God about your situation. It's okay to be sad or angry or confused. The Psalms are filled with all of these emotions. But I want you to look at the big picture of your situation. Does your situation and how you're viewing your situation line up with reality? Is it really that bad? Or are you just grumbling and complaining and not trusting God? Remember, they just saw God part the Red Sea. Then they saw Moses throw a log into a body of water and they get fresh water. And now they're griping again. We want food. Send us back. Let us die. But also note, God is not angry about their, their gripes at this point. He's more angry about their lack of trust in the provision when they go out and try to gather more manna than just a day's worth, just what they needed. And he's also lack, yeah, he's, he's mad about how they, they, they gather up the manna. That's where, that's where he really, that's the test. And I hate to tell you guys this, those of you who are doing the Bible reading plan, but the grumbling gets worse and worse. Actually, the whole book of Numbers is basically the grumbling book. And sometimes we're like, why do we even need this? And I think we need it as modern Christians because we, we do the same thing. There are ways 
that we can look at them and say, God, how can we trust you when you're providing, but life's hard? So remember, trials and hardships do not mean that God is not with us and that they might actually be a sign showing that God is with us. And even if the situation is hard, really, really hard, it can still be used by God. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Corey Ten Boom, her and her sister, their, their, her dad was a pastor and they were hiding Jews during the, during the uh, Holocaust time, during World War II, and her and her sister get thrown into a concentration camp. And in the concentration camp, their, bunk, their uh, dorm gets infested with fleas. And you'd think the fleas are suffering, but actually, if you read her autobiography, which I challenge everyone to read, it's really, really powerful, the time of the fleas were actually a time of, of relief. So they were suffering physically, but because of the fleas, they, they won other favors, and they were able to do more in the concentration camps for God. I have a friend named Wayne, and years ago, Wayne, was, Wayne lives in a closed country where you know, Christianity is tightly controlled, and Wayne became a Christian, and they had a small campus fellowship, and some local police and others decided to just crush the campus fellowship when, when Wayne was just a baby, baby believer. And some of them stood firm, and they trusted God, and it was hard. It was hard. And then four years later, fast forward four years later, Wayne is now a, a lay pastor at a house church, and he's grown in his faith, and a real harsh persecution comes. Like, people are threatening he could lose his job, he could, they could go to jail. And what he learned from that early time of trusting God allowed, saw him through, and he led many, many people through that harsh, harsh persecution. So sometimes the bad situations are God just preparing us for future situations that we're going to have to deal with in the world, and, and most importantly, preparing us to be God's children so that we could love him and serve him. So if you ever think about it, pray, pray for my friend Wayne. He's still, still going at it, still loving people, still sharing in the midst of the fear of persecution almost, almost daily. In every situation, we can look at the big picture of the situation and we can look at what is true of God and his character. We can look how God has worked it out in our own lives and we can trust God. So what I want to ask one question this morning, are you doing this? And how can you grow in this area? As we go through these trials, struggles, and hardships, we can be confident that God will provide all we need. That is the next truth I want to proclaim this morning. God provides all that we need. Do you believe this? I know that right now things are really uncertain. We're in the middle of the worst pandemic in 100 years, and thankfully the quarantine is working But there's a lot of anxiety based on the uncertainty. And we as Christians can easily fall into the worry, into this worry and anxiety. I don't know everyone's specific situation and their specific anxieties and fears right now. So I just want to ask you to do one thing. In light of the present COVID-19 situation and your present reality, ask yourself this question. Do I believe that God will provide all that I need? Take a moment and reflect on this. Do you really believe that no matter what happens with this thing, that God will provide all that you need? I need to ask this to myself. We need to almost ask this daily. Do we really, when we read that news report and we're terrified, whether it's financial or, or we're terrified about the physical, do we really believe that God will provide all that we need?
Do we really believe that he is in control? The next truth I want to proclaim that we can learn from the manna account is that we can trust God for our daily bread. Remember, they wanted to go out and store all this extra bread. I can imagine them doing the shirt thing, you know, like the kid with the pinata. You know, the the pinata falls and you have that one kid who just, he's only four and he already figured out the strategy. You know, he's the kid who becomes the entrepreneur and the millionaire later on in life, but he figures out how to maximize the candy. You know, he he knows I don't want to be the guy hitting it when the candy falls. So maybe when it's his turn, he just lightly taps it because he wants to be in the sprinter stance so when that candy falls, man, he's ready to go. And, I, and that's how they were with the manna. Some of them were like, yeah, I know, they said, just collect enough for your family or for this day. But we know what it's like to not have food, so we're going to grab a ton of it. And every bit that they grabbed rotted. That's how God, and everybody who grabbed enough had enough. And we're going to look at a story of Jesus where Jesus recreates this miracle. So... I want us to just ask God, say, do we really trust him with our daily bread? Just the bread we need for today, not even tomorrow's bread. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus commands us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And this is financial and emotional. Do we trust God or not? If God allowed everything that we have to be taken away, could we still trust him? This is kind of the Job question. Did you notice at the end of the passage, God asked the Israelites to put some manna in a jar and keep it with the tablets of the covenant and the Ark of the Covenant? And actually, the the bread that they put there got preserved forever. I mean, for a long time, because God did it. And this, putting these pieces of manna in the Ark, it was a long-standing reminder that God would always provide their daily bread. As they wandered in the wilderness, as they claimed the land God had promised, as they lived in the land and built the country that God had promised them, as they are cast into exile because they broke and they they disobeyed and they sinned against God, the bread was still there as a reminder of his presence. And when they returned from exile, this idea of the bread was always there. God will always provide their daily bread, but they still needed a Messiah and they still needed someone to redeem them and save them. And then the really good news The good news of good news is that the bread of life came. Jesus came. This is the final truth I want us to meditate on this morning. We have the bread of life. We don't go to the holy mountain. God has come to us. Instead of finishing the sermon with my commentary on the manna account of Exodus 16, I want to let Jesus teach us in his own words. In John chapter 4, Jesus tells a Samaritan woman at the well, that he is the living water, and whoever drinks the water he gives them will never thirst, that the water he gives them will be in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I wish I could cover John 5 and all the ways that John shows how Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament law, but I'm going to jump to John 6. In John chapter 6, verses 3 through 12, it says this, Jesus went up to the mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test them. Notice that same idea. 
for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a, a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed those to who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all, when they had all, sorry, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to this disciple, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had, by those who had eaten. Jesus, so you see, Jesus is, is doing it. He's actually recreating the miracle that happens in Exodus. But he does something even more profound at the end of this account. So Jesus, then the disciples are on a boat. Jesus, they're going across the river. Remember thinking about getting to the other side, like the account, the Israelites get to the other side of the body of water, and they're scared, and Jesus calms the storm, and he walks on water. So Jesus controls the sea, like God did at the Exodus account. And the next day on the other side of the lake, people ask Jesus many, many questions. And we'll continue on to the account in verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, is to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we, we may see it and believe you? What will you do? As if feeding 5,000 people wasn't enough of a sign. But this reminds me of, of the Israelites. Remember, the sign in Exodus was not the manna. In Exodus 3.12, the passage we looked at earlier, it says, and God says, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt and you will worship at the mountain, the sign was getting to worship, getting to be in the presence of God. The manna was a result. So these people, the, I would argue that the people at the time of Moses missed it and the people at the time of Jesus missed it. They needed God more than they needed manna. They needed God more than they needed food. The sign was the promise and presence of God they received at Mount Sinai. The manna was a test and a provision from God to get them to understand and know what it means to be God's people and have God's presence with them. John 6 continues. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is beginning to, to, to teach them the story of the Exodus, but to say, this is the full fulfillment of it. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am. The same I am that we, when Moses asked God, what's his name? Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will, comes to me, I will never drive away. 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of, none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day. At this, the Jews began the Jews there began to grumble. Notice the same word, they're grumbling. He just told them how to have eternal life about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God, only he who has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give, you, which I will give for the life of the world. Amen. This is our hope. This is our confidence. This is what we turn to in good and bad times. We have Jesus. In him we have everything we need. We may go physically or emotionally hungry for a season or even a long period of time, but we will always have the bread of life and we will never be spiritually hungry. We have hope in the present and our future is insecure in Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Let's pray. Father, our hope is in you. You are the bread of life. You provide all that we need. We can trust you for our daily bread. We know that you're with us in our trials and that when trials come, we we can know that you love us and you're you're with us and, and you're just caring for us as we trust you through each day. But you're also allowing us to have to lean on you. And God, we praise you that you're the bread of life, that you came and there's no longer, we, ne- we never have to worry as our future secure because we have you, God. Be with us this week, God, and, and may we walk in you and know that we have all that we need in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.